This is In Goal Radio, the podcast, a presentation of Source for Sports Surrey, the hockey shop, thehockeyshop.com. Hi, everybody. I'm Darren Millard, and today we have a treat. We have a goaltender who was part of one of the greatest dynasties in National Hockey League history and went on to carve his own legacy in the sport of hockey and the position of goaltending. And we will also unveil a brand new product courtesy of Brian's as we bring in the founders of In Goal Magazine, David Hutchison and Kevin Woodley. And just before we get too far into this, it's been a couple of weeks since we uh, spoke with David Hutchison. How are you, Pops? I am fantastic, thank you. And I'm enjoying my new nickname. I think somebody gave me a shout out on Twitter this week and called me dad. I think just so happy it's sticking. Thanks, boys. Now, are you really appreciative or is that tongue-in-cheek? No, I think I actually am. It's nice that people appreciate me, so it's really nice. But how come Woody is Woody, I'm dad, and you just get away with being Darren? Just being a jerk. I think du- I, I, I think Ducky has to stick soon. Oh, here it comes. Here it comes. Hey, listen, I think Woody is a lot worse than dad. One of the local TSN stations here that I have a weekly um, appearance on to talk goaltending they've changed their the time slot of the guys that I'm on with. It's now an early morning thing, and they've decided they would like to call my segment Morning Wood. So, no. Yeah, I think they're looking for actually a sponsorship <laughs> from uh, the local guy who does vasectomies and also helps with uh, erectile dysfunction, uh, Dr. Pollock here in Vancouver. They're hoping for a plug there, and they would like to call it Morning Wood. So trust me, there are worse nicknames than Dad. All right, wow. Wood. That uh, that's outstanding, and with that that's about as risky as this podcast is ever going to get, uh, because of the presence of Dad. But that is um, <laughs> that's in, that's impressive that uh, that a Canadian radio station would go down that path. CRTC. It's not real. It's not a real thing. It's just a name. (laughs) Let's let's not get any ideas here, boys. We're okay. We're okay. Oh, uh, we uh, we are going to get you to the uh, to the unveiling of the Optic Two line with uh, Kevin Woodley and Cam over at the Hockey Shop, thehockeyshop dot com. Nice to see that Cam uh, Cam was there when you were. Yeah, survived Bauer World. I was happy to see that there appeared to be. I wasn't able to count them. Um, but a few extra bags under the eyes after a week at Bauer World. And I thank him for taking the time to catch up with us last week from Bauer World and for meeting me to talk about the new Optic 2 line. You know, I tell you about uh, all the latest, greatest things that they have at the hockey shop, at uh, thehockeyshop.com and the hockey shop source for sports out in Surrey. We've talked a lot recently about accessories and small items. Well, we got a big ticket item this week, and that's the launch, as you mentioned, of the Optic 2 line. Pads, gloves, we've had them here at Ingle. As a matter of fact, we had Cam out on the ice doing a little demo session in our set of pads this week. Took some photos. Um, Cam's going to have to pay me to make sure that only the flattering photos are used uh, in the publication of our review on Friday, November 1st. So when you're listening to this, it'll be online. Uh, I believe Hutch has some unflattering photos of me in, in our CCM review. I'm going to do with Cam. I'm gonna, I think I'm going to try and maybe blackmail him so that some of the ugly two-pad stack stuff doesn't make the light of day um but that's hey that's why we go to the hockey shop they've got the latest they've got the greatest from all the brands ccm bauer vaughn warrior and this week brian so make sure you check them out 
for all your questions about the new Optic 2 line. Uh, They have a whole bunch in stock. Custom orders. Call them. Cam can help you out. Check them out online at thehockeyshop.com or if you're lucky enough to live in the beautiful Lower Mainland and the Vancouver area, check them out in person out at the Source for Sports Hockey Shop in Surrey. And it is a, a destination for people that, that roll through the Lower Mainland who have, have listened to us talk about the hockey shop uh, and decided to uh, to check it out when they've been down there for a tournament or just just visiting family. It's kind of it cool. And, and it's kind of cool because evidently they come in and talk about hearing Cam on the podcast. So we've made him somewhat famous within the store. So they come in and say they've heard him and heard what we're talking about. And uh, that's always a positive for us uh, and for him. Thank you. Well, I can't wait to hear that. <laughs> Are you chewing on a toothpick out there? Uh, it's possible. <laughs> I just, I just tried to adjust my screen and, and wipe it down, and I'm like, no, he's chewing on a toothpick. I thought there was a, a crack in my screen. So nice job. I'm uh, going all hillbilly front. tonight. <laughs> you are. Well, it is uh, uh, around Halloween as we record this. Just we'll we'll get to the Optic Two unveiling in just a little bit, but uh, the feature interview this week is from uh, and with Andy Moog, who is uh, as a guy that uh, well Okanagan Valley and uh, and has given back uh, a lot to uh, to goaltenders in that area, but also uh, made his uh, made his name early in his career. Uh, won one A with Grant Fear, and then when he moved on to Boston, really uh, blossomed. And taking that franchise to a, a Stanley Cup final, or two Stanley Cup finals. So, just a little synopsis, uh, Woody, about your conversation with. You know what? I Mo- went into it thinking, I don't know, actually, I don't know why, but maybe naively or just ignorantly, frankly, thinking we were just going to talk about old stories. Um, and of course, Andy still works for the Portland Winterhawks these days. Uh, I got to know him a little bit when he was doing some consulting and goaltending coaching for the Vancouver Canucks. Uh, early in my days on the beat here in Vancouver, to me, the takeaway was how many uh, or how many tips and experiences and things that he went through, and, and not just that, but skills, skating, and and you know, some as the game has evolved so much technically since he played, and yet so much of what made him great is still, and and even more so in the past couple of years, become a foundation for modern goaltending, and so. Are, to hear him sort of blend his experiences with what he does now on the coaching side uh, with the Winterhawks down in Portland and the WHL, to me, that was the most fascinating thing. Just so many things from his history that applied now uh, in terms of coaching and working with young goaltenders. And also, obviously, Hutch, the stories were great too. And that includes, Darren, the one about the uh, iTech shield used at the Olympics. Yeah, we've got that one. I. I, I was really fascinated by his approach to coaching and, and for, for two different reasons. I, I love to ask uh, the veterans from yesteryear about how, how you can become a coach with a modern game and how you adapt. And you don't often get a very good answer, but I, I really appreciated Andy's answer. And he clearly is keeping up with the game. And then the other piece was just the way he could bring his... How do I say it? Again, quite often, the older, the older guys who, who've played the game before uh, will say, well, you know, I can be a voice for these guys. I can be somebody to lean on. And it's all, it's all sort of loosey-goosey. And, and, and Andy was able to, to really break down what that means, uh, the specific things that he can bring. And, and I think it's, I think as Kevin sort of alluded to, all the more relevant today is, is what's old is new again in many ways, that, 
he uh in the interview you'll hear him talk about um you know patience on your edges keeping your feet all these things that uh, were were key back in the day are are becoming key once again so i think we much more specifically saw how a veteran uh can can bring that um that experience to bear yeah i just think it's the, the if you if you if you see we've got andy moog on the podcast today and you're thinking it's going to be all old stories if you're a young goaltender or a goaltender court coach or a parent of a young goaltender right now make sure you listen for more than just the stories because there are so many more takeaways frankly than even i expected in this one he did something in a, a video this is going back a number of years when he was still playing but about directing pucks to the corner while standing up and you would if you wanted to knock it to the to your right side to your blocker side if you're left-handed catching a goaltender uh the puck was coming you you'd slide your your left toe out and and direct the puck off your stick to the right it was weird and then the other side do we kick your right toe up i i just never heard of that i've never heard of it since uh but there was there was a a lot of natural ingrained uh coordination reflexes and ingenuity out of Andy Moog uh that that I don't think was fully well we'll hear why maybe because uh once you hear the story of how he started and perhaps a little ambidextrous skill involved for Andy Moog as well but we'll save that for the the interview itself well that makes sense and we didn't discuss that before but that totally makes sense in in how he approached the game and uh, I'll be honest. Andy's not a wallflower. He uh, he has definite opinions about uh, about the game and the position, and I uh, I absolutely am fascinated every time I get a chance to speak to him. So here is Andy Moog, a Stanley Cup champion, three hundred game winner in the National Hockey League, and a man in conversation. Part of our feature interview with David Hutchison and Kevin Woodley on In Goal Radio, the podcast. I'm going to start it off, Andy, and actually, why don't we just what we start off by sort of catching us up on what you're doing, including the Portland Winterhawks um, and, and your work with, is it still with Okanagan Hockey Academy or you work with the academy up there? Or? Yeah, that, those would be my two, uh, my two commitments into the, into the teaching or coaching realm right now. So the last four years with uh, Mike Johnson down here in, in Portland, and that really was uh, facilitated by uh, Tyler Love at the academy, who had done Mike's work for him in the Winterhawks' previous tenure, just asked if uh, if I could come down and do it because Tyler had a greater commitment at the academy. So my my commitment is still with the academy, but it's a little bit less, and I spend uh, you know like it's almost a week a month here in Portland with the team. So what's it like? Like, is there a generation gap at all here? I mean between some of these kids how do you approach it in terms yeah. of your experiences and the way the games changed and and working now with teenagers well i think i think to begin with my greatest my greatest challenge is to is to stay current with the with the methods and the and the uh, techniques and fundamentals that are that are evolving in the game on an ongoing basis they never stop changing so that's that's nothing new in terms of understanding the new aspects but uh I would say that I, I think that my time as an instructor at hockey schools and the hockey academy over the years, I think my my time there has has shown me that that's where the game evolves. The game evolves at a younger age out of necessity. When kids can't do one thing, they invent another to handle a situation. 
and it migrates through the ranks or they take it with them through the ranks to the higher levels. So, so I, I think my time spent with the youngsters, that, uh, that young teenager through his early years where his, his strength and his size don't allow him to do certain things, they figure out ways to do other things to get the job done. And, and I think because of that, because of that exposure to the youngsters, I think I've, I've stayed more current than I, than I would have if I'd just been coaching with, uh, with older boys. It's funny you say that because I always used to ask Mitch Korn why he kept after the long grind of an NHL season, he goes on the road in the summer and does all these youth camps. And his answer was the same because working with younger coaches and younger goalies keeps me current. Um, What, what, uh, what, what to you is the biggest evolution? Like it, you know, the past five, 10 years, as you watch this game constantly changing, what do you think is the biggest part? Um, I guess in a, in a short window or in a, in a, in a couple, three, four year window, I'm, I'm really excited about the way the game's coming back around to athleticism. Uh, there was a period, uh, maybe a decade long where, where position and blocking was primary focus. And I love the way the youngsters uh, are coming back around to being athletic and engaging in their hands and, 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 getting a little bit away from some of the blocking structure and a little bit more into a, an instinctive reactive style. That's uh, for, for me, that's coming back around to my age of playing the game. Great to hear that. I think we, I think we couldn't agree anymore uh, mm-hmm. with you about the athleticism coming into the game. I was really intrigued uh, when, when you said that keeping up with the modern game is, is probably the most important thing for you right now. And aside from mm-hmm. the kids, um, how does that happen for you? Is that collaboration with other coaches? So our our staff at the academy there over the years has always been a rolling staff through the course of the summer with the with the hockey camps. So we have people coming in from Kim Dillenbaugh to Corey to Schwab to Brady Anderson. We have we have the young up and coming guys coming through our system, and so they energize us. And then uh, Jesse Pluis there is a longstanding goalie coach at the academy along with Tyler Love um we sort of absorb all this stuff they come when we when we invite people into the academy we want to we want them to come in and do their thing we're not about to set a a a program down for them and as a result I think we're 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 more prepared to listen and learn from our peers and as a result we just I think we stay current but that's one of the reasons why we stay current and you're getting a lot from these guys, but surely they're getting a ton from you. Three-time Stanley yeah. Cup champion, Jennings Trophy winner, took two different teams to the finals. Uh, what does all that experience enable you to bring to a group like that and bring to young students? Well, I guess I, I probably weight myself a little bit or, or spend a little bit more time in, 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 the, in, the, in the preparation recovery side, both as you prepare for a save on the ice and as you prepare and leave games and practices off the ice, I think, I think the one asset, the one skill you can have is to be in the moment. And, uh, I think, I think I, I have some insight into how to keep players in the moment, uh, prep and participate and then let go and refocus on the, on the next task down the line. So I think, I think that's probably where one of my strengths is. And then, I I tend to balance things off with structure and compete drills. So I I, I weighted on or I try to weight it equally with the uh, structure and fundamentals, and then 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 a compete aspect of practice every day because I think we all appreciate the way the game is now. The the, the first shot 
in a scoring scenario is typically setting up the scoring scenario. It's not an issue, actually the, the scoring chance. So uh, as a result, the battle scenarios and the, and the, the re- prep and recovery stuff is, is more important than just actually receiving pucks. You got to get to the next place or you got to be prepared in the first place to get ready to battle. Now you, you you talked about staying in the moment, Andy, and that's obviously, you know, whether it's funny, whether it's golf or goaltending, it's that next shot mentality that right up to the NHL goalies strive to get. And yet it's typically easier to say than it is to do. So I'm curious, are there any anecdotes or, uh, you know, any tips that you share with your students there in Portland or at the Academy that, that you'd be able to share with us that our audience would be able to sort of have a takeaway? This is, this is how you stay in the moment because it's often harder to do than it is to say. Yeah. Well, that's uh, that's a that's a challenge based on on the personality and the sort of the personal tempo of every goalie that I come across. That's where we begin. We sort of we, we begin to identify what the, the the goaltender's personal tempo is. He is sort of a fast twitch guy. Is he slow twitch guy? And based on 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 discovering that, then then we can sort of start to see them staying with their personal tempo and their personal rhythm as the game progresses and and even to even to some extent practice progresses um and once once we identify that then we encourage the the breathing side of it uh the relaxed posture the body language all those all those things that help goalies reset or refocus after moments that they just experienced so so we we spend a little time talking about that everybody's different um but we do stress a few things in terms of posture we want we want a positive body language so tall filling your filling your chest with air and breathing out and eyes forward and that sort of thing just in in general terms just to just to establish a sort of a foundation and then from there we try to un- uncover the the, the goaltender's own personal tempo or rhythm and and try to emphasize that's your reset button and that's what we use whether it's a positive moment or a negative moment, we don't want to look down there and know what happened 30 seconds ago. We want to see the goalie just being the goalie again. Andy, just looking back to your career now, as we mentioned, uh, three Stanley Cup championships, what would you look back on that long career and and say were the biggest highlights for you? Uh, well, cer- certainly winning the first cup and being on the ice as the clock counted down, that would that would easily be the biggest highlight um, from a playing standpoint, winning that, winning the Jennings was Reggie and in Boston was great. The, the all-star appearances. I just love when you talked about the, the, well, you just talked about being on the ice as the clock is counting down yeah. such a cool vision for us. What's going through your head in those last few moments? Who are you well, thinking about? Certainly, certainly thankful that the, the empty net is there and we put one in. So that was, yeah. a, that was a, <laughs> That was the moment of realization, I suppose. Up until that point, with seconds left in the game, whatever it was, up until that point, it was still a game. It was still on the line. Yeah. Everything mattered. Every every little instant on the on the ice was important, and that's where that's where my focus was. I, I was I was engaged. I was focused. I was in the moment, and the clock up there on the wall was irrelevant uh, because I was in the moment. But when the puck went in the empty net. I think a, a switch went off in my head and I realized I'm on the ice winning the Stanley Cup. We're on the ice winning the Stanley Cup. It was, uh, you know, it was a, it was a realization of something that that team 
and our group have been striving for for well i've been there three plus years so three years and a whole lifetime for you really you know uh i have to be honest i wasn't one of those kids that played those games on the ponds and and uh, playing outdoor games uh and never aspired it was too big a dream let's just wow. you know let's just play on the pond and let's see if we can win this game on the pond that was the most important thing yeah i how, never was how, one of those guys how did you get started Andy? because i was looking I didn't realize this in, in over the years where, where you were, when you were here in Vancouver, when we talked over these, I didn't realize your dad was a goaltender as well. And he played yeah. for the Penticton V's like, like I have a book. I remember my grandfather giving me the book, the old go V's go book about the story of the 1955 world ice hockey championship. They won. He was a part yeah. of that. Yeah. Yeah. He was, uh, he was a member of that team. And obviously that team is iconic in Penticton and it's, uh, it's relived uh, a little less frequently now, but it's relived on a on an annual basis about their championship and and the characters and the and the the backstories and the and the and the history of the team. So yeah, I grew up in that environment where my dad was a a celebrity in Penticton, basically. Early stages was was it always goal for you, or did you play out? How did your evolution sort of come to be that you, you were a goaltender, and what role did he play in it early on? Yeah, well, this was, you know, at that at, at the time when you're a youngster growing up, everybody took a turn, and uh, basically it was shift to shift because the goalies didn't wear equipment then. He just went in the net. So I took my turn, and all of a sudden I was taking a turn every other shift, and I realized that I could be on the ice the whole time if I was a goalie, and that's how it evolved <laughs> for me. And then I went into the dark recesses of the of the basement in our house and lo and behold there was goalie equipment in there i said I, di I didn't care if it was the wrong hand he caught the other way i had goalie equipment so i was like i was all set at that point so did you actually start with his gear oh yeah i played i played right-handed catch for probably two years maybe like 11 and 12 years old i was playing with his stuff as a right-handed catcher for a couple of years wow, wow that's early awesome. origins of the vasilevsky story <laughs> he uh he told us that he had to switch hands for a similar reason. Yeah, just, but stayed with it. Yeah, well, it was just availability at that point. Uh, he, yeah. he took what was ever in the in the minor hockey league locker and put it on. It didn't matter what hand. What was it? We've talked to you about your role now doing goalie coaching. What was it like back then? I mean, how did you how did you learn? How did you get better? Was it experience? Was it watching other guys locally? Was it was it games on TV? Yeah. How did you how did you evolve? Because it's obviously changed so much these days. Yeah, well, uh, I guess at the at the earliest stages, I'd sit with the I sit with my dad on the couch and watch the Leafs and Mike Palmatier and wonder how the heck he ever got it done because it was a pretty entertaining style, but not much there. And then, um, yeah, well, I'm, I was a visual learner. I I watched and studied and learned. So hanging out at the rink watching the watching my peers play, watching the, the uh, older boys play, watching the uh, the local team at the time, it was the Penticton Broncos. That was it. I was just a sponge. I was a visual learner, and I just watched, and and I tried to incorporate things I was watching into my own game. And you mentioned Palmatier. Anybody else you looked up to back then? Well, you know, my my favorite guy was, was Gump. And the right. reason the reason I like Gump, so much is that there was an image of my dad in his equipment I, I playing with no mask of course and uh yeah. uh he was uh 
he could have been Gump's brother. They had the same facial features. They had the same sort of uh, uh, body, and and so Gump looked like my dad. So I thought, okay, I'm gonna I'm gonna watch Gump now. Now you drafted by the Oilers, 1980. Um, after playing some junior hockey, Penticton, Kamloops, BCJHL, and then the WHL uh, with Billings. And you get called up in your first season after some injuries. What, like, this is the 80s, the early 80s Edmonton Oilers. We all know the names yeah. and the stories, the Gretzky and the Messiers and the Currys, and I, I probably, like, could just keep listing. What's that like as, as, as a rookie walking into that environment? Did the fact everyone else was so young make it any easier? Because to yeah. me, that just feels like a really intimidating spot to start. Yeah. Well, I, su- I suppose I had one secret weapon. Uh, and ignorance is bliss. And I think that was my secret <laughs> weapon. I didn't really appreciate <laughs> the level, the next level I was going to and the, and the caliber. I was just, I was there to stop the puck and that's sort of how I approached it. You know, I was not enlightened. I was not exposed. Um, you know, we appreciate back in that era in the seventies game of the week was all you saw on TV. So, I mean, um, the, 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 uh, the media and the, and the broadcasting games was so much less back then that it, it, it hadn't sunk in for a kid from the Okanagan that, that I was on the NHL stage and it was a big deal. It hadn't, hadn't arrived yet. It came shortly after, but it hadn't arrived in those early years. Do you remember your first game? Yeah, I got a, um, what do I got? A, I got a two minutes, two minutes in Los Angeles versus the Kings. Uh, Eddie Mio had a equipment problem and they told me I had to go off the ice to fix the problem. So I went in for two minutes in LA. I gave up a breakaway goal to Mike Murphy. And then I went back on the bench and turned out to be the winning goal of the game. So my record was, my record was oh, no. 0-1. <laughs> my goals against with 30 and my save percentage was zero. And that stuck <laughs> on my, on my stats for like, well, weeks and weeks and weeks. It was so embarrassing. <laughs> Nowhere to go but up. I was going to say, I guess the good news is that that's the good news. You weren't in the internet era back then, so not everybody was checking those stats on a daily basis. Yeah, right. Nowadays, it'd be all over Twitter. So you end up, but you end up playing in the playoffs that year. First round sweep yeah. of the Montreal Canadiens. Like, yeah. What was it like being part of that building process? You talked about it before winning the first cup, but being part of that group as they built towards that, um, yeah. through successes and at times failures. Yeah. For, for that team at that time, it was every day they, they rushed to get to the rink. They wanted the next new experience. And that's what it felt like. Let's hurry up and get to the rink and see what we can do today. And, uh, you know, as, as we went, and as we went through the last month of that season, I was called up for both Mio and Ron Lowe had broken hands simultaneous, such a fluke. So I get called up and, uh, he he uh, say the decides uh, coaches decide that they're going to play me down the stretch and I end up playing four or five starts and I went two or three and we scratch our way into the playoffs in the last week of the year I mean it just it felt like this is what I'm supposed to be doing and again that naive and ignorance thing was a key part of that <laughs> but anyways that was it and you know skating around the ice at the forum on the morning of the first game of the playoffs and say asked me how I felt and I said feel pretty good and he says, uh, you think you'd like to play tonight? And I said, yeah, I think I'd like that. And he says, all right, you start. And he just skated away. And that was my, that was my, uh, my introduction into NHL playoffs was, uh, all right, you'll play to them. And he just skated away. 
against the Montreal Canadiens at the forum. Yeah. Nice. Nice. Yeah. Now that ne- next season, Grand Fear comes on the scene, you're up and down a little bit, but the season after that, 82-83, Sather decides to go with the two of you. They trade Ron Lowe, yeah. and they hand it over. And this is interesting, especially when you contrast it to today's game. Like We're only now seeing teams start to hand the keys over to goalies at a young age. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, it's, it's always been veterans. And yet here, here we are back in 82, 83 and, and, and the Oilers did that and you were a big part of it. Yeah. Yeah, it is. It, it was a certainly a different generation, a different era, but at that time there was a need to match up all the elements. So you, you had this young, fiery, explosive team and you, you wanted some young, athletic, fiery goaltenders and, he found a couple that he thought could work. And uh, so he, he decided to, to go with Grant and I, and, and like you said, nobody, no, we, neither of us had established ourselves um, to any degree yet, but uh, I guess looking at, at potential, that was the decision made based on what he thought our potential was. What's that relationship? Like what's that dynamic like between you and Grant, two young guys competing for playing time on a team that's try, like you said, trying to take those next steps and, mm-hmm. You know, and and not long after wins the Stanley Cup. For me, now you you, you probably get the same answer from Grant, but I don't want to speak for him. For me, it was uh, that was our uh, support network. That was our that was our our way to lessen some of the burden. Sitting beside Grant all the time, realizing we were both dealing with the same experiences, both uh, struggling to wrap our arms around uh, arms around confidence. We just wanted to show and be perceived and and play with confidence. And, you know, it, it didn't always happen. There was, there was a lot of rough nights, but it seemed like we had a little built in support system with each other. And, uh, we leaned on each other all the time for a little bit of venting from time to time and a, and a little bit of patting on the back and good job. Did you have a goalie coach at that point with the Oilers or we, we predate goalie coaches in the NHL back then? Yeah, that was a little bit, that was predated. We had a scout on staff named Eddie Chadwick and Chad would come in once in a while and, and walk into the room and say, Hey, you let's go for a beer and a sandwich. And that was, that was, uh, that was goalie. That was goalie coaching back then. I like that style of goalie. I, I'll take one of those jobs. If we just got to take guys for beers and sandwiches. Um, I, I do got to ask too, with all that, like, like you said, like that team is just basically, you know, all, uh, all stars and hall of famers. And what was practice like? Cause I guess hockey in the eighties for a goaltender was wide open enough, but what yeah. was practice like facing those guys? How did you, how did you handle that? Cause it would have, I'm guessing that's a lot of talent shooting on you on yeah. a daily basis. So, uh, you know, obviously the Oilers were evolving the game and, and developing this puck possession style of game. That was their, that was their focus. They, if the, if we had the puck, we didn't have to defend. So with that in mind, that was the philosophy of practice. And, and Grant and I used to like to tell the stories. We'd start with one on O's and then we'd go to two on O's and then it'd be three on O's <laughs> and then we'd have four on O's and then five on O's. And then, you know, you pull the goalie sometimes. So we better do a couple six on O's. That was practice. <laughs> <laughs> and a whole lot of ice bags on groins, I think, yeah, by the end of one yeah. of those. That was uh that's that's remarkable. It's I find it. Yeah, that was the that was the challenge. There was very little resistance. There was very little competition. The whole practice was focused on pace, skate, 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 and puck possession. And it was evident every time we acquired a player, the guy would come in and for two weeks 
this guy couldn't practice because he he had to catch up to the pace of the Oilers practice. But once they caught up, then it was it was natural to them to play fast, play with the puck, go fast, and, and attack. I always found it remarkable that a that a team like that, that the way you describe it, that in many ways just tried to outscore the opposition, yet well known for having great goaltending yeah. over the years at the same time. Um, as you've hinted, couldn't have been easy psychologically for the the two of you to to live in that system. There were challenges for sure. But I got to tell you, you know, I was in there for seven years and uh, Sather would get unhappy with us from time to time. And he'd he'd let us know, but not one instance, even through the year I was with the Olympic team and not with the group, there was not one instance in my career in Edmonton. I didn't think that he had our backs. It always felt like no matter what happened, just work hard. I got your back. And that, that was the challenge for us. Just stay focused, work hard, and say that I'll have your back. And uh, there's a, there's a, it's an empowering feeling to know that somebody's got your back like that. Now, you mentioned, you mentioned the Olympic team. Of course, 1987, um, left the Oilers, played for Team Canada at the Calgary Winter Olympics with Sean Burke, if I, if I recall correctly. Um, right. And then ended up through that traded uh at the deadline to the boston bruins for yeah. bill ranford which is we were me and hutch were discussing earlier that must be the you know one of those perfect examples of a win one of those trades that works out for everyone yeah yeah there's a there's a game in there that didn't actually work out the way i wanted against billy but that's another story right okay yeah <laughs> <laughs> sorry about that um so you go you basically go from paul coffee to ray bork who was the better guy to play behind yeah, there was uh, there was a it was a level playing field. Let's put it that way. Uh, the one thing I will say about Ray, and it it, it took a while to realize, but I, I don't think anybody played more minutes in the NHL during that era than Ray Bork. Uh, he was an incredible fit athlete that could play those twenty six, twenty eight minutes a night, uh, unheard of in today's game. But that's you know he set the standard in terms of durability and playability. Uh, it was just incredible what he did. Kevin, you've you've skipped over the Olympics just a little bit. And when Darren couldn't join us, he did send in uh, that he'd like to hear the story of the iTech Shield. Well, and actually, it comes from Sean Burke, too. Evidently, Darren said this. We're going to call this a listener question because it was him and Sean Burke talking about it the other day. Oh, is that right? Yeah. There you yeah. go. Well, it, it as the season progressed there, I was wearing my, I, I had my, uh, uh, NHL mask that I, that I had worn for several years there in Edmonton, the the uh, the mask and bars. And uh, as we went through the preparatory part of that season, October, November, December, January, we were assured from Hockey Canada that IOC would allow us, the International Olympic Committee would allow us to wear those uh, that equipment. It it didn't have the appropriate style that they wanted, but they were assured us that it was going to be okay. And then um, the day before the first game, they said, no, you can't wear it. So we had, you know, we were going under the assumption that we could wear it. And um, so Sean had a, a mask that he wore when he was a youngster and it was the appropriate helmet and cage. And I obviously I hadn't had anything that was appropriate because I'd only wore cat's eye bars my whole life. So uh, we experimented with a few things and I put the eye tech on and, and it was the, it, it was the answer for me. It, it didn't cause a problem. It wasn't an issue. 
so uh, I think IOC got the got the idea when they come and watch practice, and we'd be wearing the other stuff. And they asked why, and they said, "Well, it's better protection." So I think a light went off in the IOC's head at that point that that we're forcing these guys to wear inferior pr- 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 protection. So, anyways, I get to the first game and I play, and I get a shutout. We beat somebody. I think it was Poland or something. And uh, after the game, uh, I see the iTech rep in the hall, and he's freaking out, like he just he's paralyzed. He says, "You can't wear that. You can't wear that in goal." I said, what are you talking about? It's, it's CSA approved. Everything's good. He says, yeah, you can't wear that. That's not approved for goalies. It's approved for skaters and stick contact, that sort of thing. So he's freaking out. And I said, oh, I got to wear it because that's the only thing that works. And so that that sort of was the the crux of the story was leading up to the moment we thought we were okay. And then and then ultimately we had to make a, a quick change. And that's the, that's the choice I, I went with. Did you take any shots off it? Uh, no, uh, no shots. And like I said, I would, I wouldn't, uh, I wouldn't wear it. And I don't think I even warm it in the game warm up. I think I wore my oh, helmet wow. and mask combo in the warm up. Then I turned it over and put it on just when the game started. So, uh, I think they were, I think they were aware of their predicament at that point when, uh, when Sean and I were doing that. And then, and I, I honestly believe, I don't believe any other goaltenders had that, that setup. It hadn't really gone worldwide yet. It was still a very Canadian or North American. Wow, thing. that's I mean that's that's amazing story to hear. What like and before we get mm-hmm. into Boston, I want to ask like what like when you look at the equipment now, when you're there with Portland and you're looking at some of these pads yeah. that weigh like four pounds, four to five pounds. Like what mm-hmm. goes through your mind? What was it like back? Like was equipment a part of your fascination with the game at all when you were younger or when you were in the pros? It it, it became it became a curiosity for me when I, when I really established a great relationship with the, with Mike Vaughn and the, and the Vaughn group. And so having, having uh contact and being able to call Mike and talk about where I think a, 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 a better protective area should be on a, say an arm and chest or a glove or something, talking to him about, you know, the toe hole on a pad, things like that. That's when I really started getting interesting. When I, when I said it, he understood it he understood what I was talking about in terms of the, whether it was the channel or the landing pad for the knee, he got it. He figured that out. And so I was talking to somebody that was coming from my world. And it was probably then that I got real curious and interested in the equipment. I just wanted to go to, go to, go to Boston a little bit. And what, what was that change like for you coming from Edmonton and going to the Bruins? And like we've talked about being part of that dynamic with this young Oilers team, um, playing on a different, in a different conference. Like what were the biggest adjustments for you? Well, certainly the, the cultures were very different. The, the oiler culture was a bit of a, you know, there was a, it was a, it was a run and gun team for sure. We wanted to play with the puck. We wanted to play fast. And, and it was a bit of a celebrity style with Gretzky and we always be in LA and there'd be a Hollywood, somebody or a band member. And then we get to, we get to Boston and it's a very, blue collar, lunch pail, let's go to work, let's get the job done, let's go home sort of thing or whatever they did. You know what I mean? It was just a, it was a different culture. Guys, guys, and they, and they meld in or they mold into the culture that they're, they're in. And that, that was sort of how it evolved. I, I became, well, it was, for me, it was, it wasn't much of a change because I was the goalie going from team to team. But uh, as far as the, just put your stuff on and get to work thing, that was, you know, that was me in Edmonton too. So, 
but the, the culture of the team was, was very different. I remember going out for my first practice and there was a, there was a rack of, of jerseys in Boston and uh, Edmonton, everything was washed, clean, sewn, impeccably presented. And I go to Boston and there's this, there's this uh, rack of tired, torn, worn out, stinky old jerseys hanging up there. And they just say, Oh, go pick one and put it on. It was, uh, it was sort of their, their, their image was to be sort of rough and tumble and torn and teared. And that, that was okay with them. They, they had all the new jerseys, mm. but they left them in the back. They made us wear the old roughed up ones. <laughs> As a goaltender, can you like, can you, do you, do you just try and fit into that? Can you embrace the personality of a team or are you sort of have to maintain your, your sort of individuality behind those different styles? Yeah, there was, there was one, there was one guy in the team that I'd played with before in uh, uh, Kenny Lensman. So Kenny was sort of the, the um, introduction into the group. And I came with another player. I came with Mo LeMay. And, and I think Mo at that time, he bounced up and down through the NHL and the minors. So he was never there consistently. So Kenny was my sort of tie in. And, and you know, as, as any team goes through, if you acquire a player, uh, teammates seek out anybody who played with the player coming in to get an insight. So I'm sure Kenny had lots of those questions about who I was and what it was all about, that sort of thing. So he sort of paved the way a little bit for my introduction. And then, you know, Reggie was, you know, he was the battle of Alberta opponent for so long. Felt like I know him, but it was always 200 feet away. I'm curious over your career, who's, who are the toughest guys you had to face? And is, is there a tough guy you had to face that, uh, that maybe people wouldn't come to mind? I mean, obviously Gretzky would have been fantastic, yeah. but, uh, but who were the tougher guys and who, who might we not know about? Well, the, the, the one you'll know about and the one that was most difficult for me, just surely based on his talent was Mario Lemieux. Um, that six foot something guy yeah. with that exceptional reach really caused chaos with small goaltenders. It was, uh, it was really challenged for me to be patient hold my feet and hold my position with him. He had so many skills and so many attributes available. Uh, for me, for me at the time, it was, um, it was the, the, the trio or the combo in Quebec city led by Stastny, Stastny and Goulet. They were dynamic for sure. And that was, that was a difficult challenge for me. Uh, and it always, yeah, I guess it always centered around, it may not have been an individual, but it might've been a combination of guys that were always challenging. It had to be the, you know, the triple crown line in LA who played a lot and played with confidence and they were dynamic. They were tough to play against. Um, gosh, who else was, who else was difficult at the time that I'm trying to pull out of my head. Um, I had a pretty good time in Montreal. So even the, even the stars Montreal at that time, the, the dynamic players there, I just had a I had a level of confidence born from those early years that that allowed me to handle that stuff pretty good. Um, you know, the, the one one guy in Detroit, um, he was a winger. Uh, his name was John O'Grodnick. He scored a lot of goals for a lot of years. And if John O'Grodnick got time and space and shot the puck the way he normally shoots the puck, it was a real challenge for me. He had a deceptive release. Mm. The puck came off his stick differently than others. Now, at one point, I caught a glimpse of his curve on his stick, and I said, "How do you play with that curve?" It was it was the most unusual 
curve on a hockey stick I'd seen to date. And uh, that, that he was in my head. He gave me a lot of challenges. And uh, that might be the guy that stuck, stuck out the most, I suppose. It's interesting from the beginning to the end of that, you talked about two things that I think are so important today in goaltending. And uh, wh- one was having the patience and holding your edges against yeah. Lemieux. And then fascinated that you that you brought in the relationship of confidence to how you play. Yeah. Uh, confidence seems like something people don't really understand, mm-hmm. but but that was a real tie into technique. Oh wasn't yeah, it? it's it's such a tell, and I'm I'm watching I'm watching our goaltenders here this week in Portland, and obviously Joel Hofer is on the top of his game, and he just seems so prepared to wait and and let the play come to him and react. Um, instinctively as, as the play occurs. And I've got um, a young Isaiah Delora who is searching to find his game after a long time being out of the net. He's had about two and a half or three weeks without a game and, the, and his practice habits, you tend to lose a little focus, you lose a little patience and you lose your edges. And all of a sudden there's a lot of net to shoot at. So two guys, 200 feet apart, they're playing differently right now. And, and uh, it's the challenge right now is to is to is to speak very little to Joel outside of support, and then be able to interact with Isaiah and get him to recognize that he can be a little more patient and he has a little bit more time. So this week's been fun with Isaiah because he went from a guy that was on his knees virtually the whole practice to now he's catching pucks and touching pucks with his hands and he's staying on his feet to do it. So it's good to see a. Uh, uh, a change, albeit a small one, in a short period of time. You also mentioned when you talk about Lemieux and you talked about being a smaller goalie. They had you listed at five foot nine. Um, how? That's generous. Okay, okay. <laughs> I mean, and obviously you, you must marvel at at the trend today. And and I mean, yeah. you know, there there are guys. I remember talking to John in the Bernier, who is six foot, and that might be generous too. But um, you know, probably says he doesn't. He's had a good career, and he probably says he doesn't even get drafted or even get a shot in today's NHL. But I wanted to ask you a little bit, because as you talked about that style and facing Lemieux, you were in the league at a time when we saw an evolution of the position, um, not so much away from skating, but certainly more um, more of the blocking, more of the butterfly, more of those techniques came in, obviously with Patrick in 86 and then through the early 90s. Like, Was there a point where you got a goalie coach that was asking you to add those things, or how did your game evolved through that process around you as some did and some didn't change their ways, especially through the mid and into the late nineties. I suppose that the, the evolution in my game occurred when I realized that, that being on my feet was a better place to be. It took a long time. I, I, I made a lot of mistakes early in my career just because I didn't recognize the need to stay on my feet, to, to hold my edges. And once I realized that, then all of a sudden my, my skating, my movements, my laterals and my depths adjustments became the priority. If I can just move on my feet, I can get to places quickly and I can settle and prepare for shot. Uh, I, I think that was, a, that was a realization after I got to the NHL. I always knew that movement was important, but I think I really started to apply it and understand it after I got in the NHL, just based on the quality of shooter, the consistent quality of shooter you dealt with. So once I started to appreciate that, I think that was the evolution of my game all the way through. How much longer can I stay on my feet? How much more control can I have on my edges? You talked, and and again, obviously those are things that, you know, 
we're seeing increasingly have value in today's game, especially as as the attacks get more lateral and the releases. Even mm-hmm. you you mentioned Ogrodnik. Well, you know they've all got releases now. It appears in curves that that are designed to be deceptive. So that patience has never been more important. Um, you after playing, you finished playing with the Canadians in ninety seven, ninety eight. Coaching, uh, you know, we talked about what you're doing now, but you did some goalie coaching, including another shot at the Olympics with Canada as a consultant yeah. and that one mm-hmm. that one ended up with a gold medal like walk us through what that experience was like being a part of team Canada as a consultant at the 2006 Winter Olympics yeah that was that was a uh, that was a wonderful experience obviously and it was just it was just born out of out of uh, the the management team with the Olympic program realizing that that it would be an asset to have some goaltender insight and so it began it began in earnest, uh, you know, in September of that year. I was I was working for the Canucks on a part-time basis at the time, and through my work, I would be watching games and evaluating goaltenders, both uh, the potential goalies to play for Canada, and also opposition goalies that were going to be facing some in the NHL. But I'd have to go and find other guys from time to time too that were going to face the NHL people. So, anyways. Uh, that's how it started with the with the Olympic uh, management team realizing that they would need they need a little bit more insight into the position and and so when Gretz called me and then I talked to Pat Quinn it was it was a no brainer that's that's one one character one job that I I really enjoyed and uh, so I worked all the way through Salt Lake Olympics that year yeah. Andy, that's awesome. I can't thank you enough. We've taken up way more of your time than we had originally planned on. But these stories, uh, I, I know how much we enjoyed them. I know how much our listeners enjoyed them. Uh, can't thank you enough for taking the time to, to join the Ingo Radio podcast. Best of luck with the Portland Winterhawks this season. And uh, hopefully our paths cross again here soon down the road. Yeah, my pleasure. You're welcome. Interesting conversation and angle because one thing that uh, that I've never really thought about was when Andy and Grant were coming up through the with the Edmonton Oilers and playing with those great teams was confidence in practice was really like it just wouldn't be there because you're facing the the greatest of all time and then a bunch of guys who are really 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 good. So it wasn't like you could work on a practice and and build your confidence back up because that like that was almost like uh, a beatdown part and the the games were easier. That, that was a cool little angle that you guys went down. Well, and it was interesting to me that just how much we you know I, I I don't know that I knew what to expect in terms of what his answer would be about him and Grant and to hear him talk about how they had to work through the psychology of that together and as young guys too we forget like these aren't guys who are ten years in the league. Like you think about this, like we're just now after all these years of veteran goaltenders surviving and everybody saying goalies take forever to develop. And we're only now starting to see the Carter Hart's and the Andre Vasilevsky's um, and, and the Mackenzie Blackwood's get their shot at a younger and younger age. Like that's a new development, except when you look back at Andy Moog and Grant Fear, they were playing behind this, you know, dynasty in their early 20s, starting, you know, at Andy the same his, time. Yeah, yeah together. exactly. And, and not just one guy getting that shot early, but a tandem. So ahead of the curve in so many ways there in Edmonton, 
But I think we forget how tough that must have been for two young goaltenders. And it was interesting to hear Andy talk about leaning on each other to get through that mental challenge. And and the interesting part about Andy was that he bet on himself. The, the contract uh, dispute with the Edmonton Oilers, he sits out a year, plays uh, for the national team and, and, and the Olympic Games in your own country. Uh, partnered up with Sean Burke and and the old iTech uh, the visor uh, story, but uh, but he he bet on himself and backed it up and went to Boston and, and had uh, had a great career. And I think it uh, really validated him as a goaltender as well beyond those those lines with the with the Edmonton Oilers. Uh, he was a Vaughn guy, always a Vaughn guy. Uh, go ahead, uh, Woody. I was just gonna say, Darren, like <laughs> thank you for the reminder on the iTech story and the note to make that a <laughs> listener question that you and Sean Burke have been talking about it. Cause to hear like, like honestly to hear Andy tell it, like they were just lucky. Nobody pegged them in the head. I know shots aren't what, what they are today back then, but I mean, you know, if that was a serious health risk, he was wearing something that absolutely does not sound like it was meant for goaltenders to wear. And here he is in the Olympics wearing basically a fiberglass shield in front of his face. And you, you, I mean, you kind of knock on wood that nothing happened, but man, I was cringing as he told that story. <laughs> That's, I'm glad that question came up because quite honestly, I hear that question in a minor hockey dressing room at least once a year. Why don't goalies just wear the plastic shield for better vision? And because we'd like to tell because we'd like to have our eyes when yeah, we're older. Think, yeah, it's a pretty easy answer, but, uh, but it's no, mostly I just jump in and I say, well, actually it's been done. So, now we have this story to share. Well, and you couldn't do it necessarily in minor hockey uh, because of the environment that the, you play in. I'm talking about cold and uh, and uh, arenas that uh, that would allow and lead to fogging up uh, because you'd, you'd be wiping that thing down. I mean, there's a whole other uh, different uh, challenge when, when your mask or visor starts fogging up in the middle of a game as well. You're not like a player. And wiping it down on the bench, but uh, that was fun. Uh, he was uh, he was one of my favorites uh, when I was uh, when I was coming up through the ranks, and uh, and always appreciate the time that that he takes to to talk to us about goaltending. And again, he's got some definite opinions ab- uh, about it. Uh, I mentioned he was a Vaughn guy always uh, growing up, and uh, we we in our gear segment talking about the Brian's line, the Optic Two, and uh, Woody. I mean. Give us a cold dose before you get into it with Cam, but uh, there's a, I mean, Brian is at the forefront of just being uh, not afraid to push the boundaries. Yeah, they definitely pushed a few with the original Optic line, and it kind of continues with Optic too. I mean, the biggest one is they essentially got rid of the outer roll. Uh, like the outer roll is like less than a quarter of an inch thick. It's almost not there. It might as well not be there. Um and if you think about it, it kind of makes a lot of sense. I mean, the outer roll was put on old leather pads to sort of provide, you know, a, a firm edge to those old stuffed pads. And it's really not necessary anymore. Uh, they've thinned it out that way. Uh, the response in terms of goalies getting into RVH, they find it a little easier without having just, just easier to get a seal. Um, rebounds more consistent makes the graphics pop a little bit more when you don't have to deal with it. So, you know, there's just one example and we'll get into the rest with Cam about some of the changes they've made, but you know, Cole's notes, uh, they've changed the profile of this pad significantly. Uh, it's, it's got a lot more built in pre-curve to it, but it's also a lot stiffer 
at least from the knee up. So that curve's going to hold over time. Uh, and they've really improved the stability in the butterfly when you're on your knees, both the seal and the stability. And, you know, you talked about Vaughn. Um, one of the other, you know, innovations for Brian's with the original optic line was putting their Primo material, which is, had been a something they used. It was, it's a nice looking material, but also had good, good wear properties. They used it in high wear zones before. Um, they put it on the inside edge and it slides like a hot dam. And, you know, so Vaughn basically in their last line started to, for lack of a better term, frankly, copy it, use the same material uh, to improve the sliding on their pads as well. So, they, you know, again, there's an example of Brian's kind of uh, trying something different. Um, you know, credit where it's due. Bauer was the first to sort of go after that slides better with new materials mold. Others have followed suit and Brian's with their with their Opti slide and that Primo material. You know, to be honest with you, it's it's one of the better sliding materials we have. A little little tough on fresh ice. You want to cut up your crease a little bit because it actually tends to stick when the ice is wet. But once you get that crease, you know, just a little bit sort of worn in, uh, they slide incredibly well. So lots to like about this pad. And like I said, we'll get into it with Cam in the gear segment this week. Slides like a hot damn, eh? <laughs> hot knife through butter. Is that good? But that actually would <laughs> imply good. sticking into the ice. No, this stuff just like, it's slick. It's slick. Uh, I like the slides like a hot dab. Hot knife through Carrie's loaf of butter. Remember that I reference? Now we have to I would reference take that as well. The glove and the <laughs> yeah, the hot butter. <laughs> right. Yeah. This is what this uh, is what happens when you record close to midnight, folks. <laughs> we'll do that on the back end of this. But uh, here's the gear segment uh, dealing with Optic Two Line and Brian's with Woody and Cam. Welcome back to the Hockey Shop Source for Sports. We're here with Cam Matwiv, who has survived Bauer World and is now back here in goalie heaven, the basement bottom floor of the Hockey Shop Source for Sports in Surrey, suburbs of Vancouver. And of course, you can find him if you're not from the area at thehockeyshop.com. Exciting week. We have new gear, which isn't normal for the fall. Normally, this is all around springtime, but Brian's does things a little differently, has for a while. And so here we are, month in the season, we get to talk about the new Brian's Optic 2 line. Cam, I've had a chance to have this on the ice. We'll have our review up uh, when it launches on November 1st. Um, but I wanted to talk to you walk, you, walk through some of the features, and then maybe I'll add some insights into how our testers have first impressions on how it's performed. So uh, Optic was a departure, the original Optic two years ago, uh, from the Sub-Zero line. They wanted to sort of differentiate uh, the Optic line from their genetic line, which is continued. And they've continued on here with Optic 2 with some improvements. Can you walk me through sort of what the response to Optic 1 was and what some of the key, you know, main improvements or changes you've seen, at least out of the box, in the Optic 2 line from Bryant? For sure. I mean, original Optic dropped and, you know, a lot of guys did turn their head, not only A, because of the strapping system on the original Optic, um, but B, just the profile of the pad and how thin it was. Um, kind of lightweight, thin, stiff, or soft, depending on which flex you went with, uh, profile of a pad. Um, it gave you that flexibility in terms of finding exactly what you needed. And to be honest, it was it was a great timing for for Brian's to kind of create a bit of a generation gap between their pads. As yeah, because the, the Sub-Zero and the genetic line had sort of blended together. A lot of the key features that most people liked in both had were kind of now on both pads. So this was time to they took the best and left it in genetic from that style. This was time to differentiate. Exactly, exactly. And you know what? There's there's way less you know similarities from an optic to a sub zero than there would be like differences. 
Um, and that's what you found. I mean, the, the introduction of, for example, the Opti slide being fully adopted as a retail, you know, initial what was formerly a mod to get Primo on your slide surface. Um, and then just general overall feel for the pad. You get a responsive pad, but you get, again, that little stiff, more rigid, blockyish style if you want to well, go for a Well, the butterfly pad. Yes. Um, but what I like in this is, like you said, there's still a soft feel to the back of it. You can still sort of dial it in and get that attached feel through the shin and the bottom of the pad, but with a little more, like you said, sort of straight lines up at the top. And that includes um, a significantly reduced, you talk about the thinner profile, almost non-existent outer roll. That's correct. Um, now, again, we've had Optic One out. Uh, we've had a, had Optic One out in the hands of a junior goaltender in the United States um, for the past like eight months. No problems, no complaints. It's been used in the NHL like this. I thought we might hear a little more blowback on the no outer roll. Um, but really, our testers and guys that have worn it up in the NHL, it hasn't really been an issue. Yeah, like you really think about it. And the outer roll was to provide structure to the old school style of pads, but now you don't really... You don't really need it. I mean, yeah, you could argue a little bit of uh, puck skip over, but you have a truer flat face on the pad. A, the pad looks wider than anything else on the wall because of the lack of that outer roll. But B, in terms of sealing up against the post in a reverse VH situation, you get a nice solid seal with that rather than getting bumped out by your outer roll. So, uh, and more I, consistent rebounds too. That's the one thing exactly. I will say. Every once in a while, in tight, you'll have one that instead of popping down, will pop up and you just not up and over, but just up a bit. Um, that's at least anecdotally been what we found in our testing. But more, you know, you're not going to have that one where you think you're kicking it out and it hits the outer roll and dies in front of you in a dangerous spot. So you could argue more consistent rebounds. And I think the one thing you can't argue, especially looking at the new optic too, is makes for some hot graphics. Yes, yes. So we've seen a lot of uh, interesting and actually really good looking graphic packages so far, and I think we'll continue to see that. Well, and Brian's obviously uh, has long billed themselves as the custom goal company for their custom work with graphics and the ability to sort of design anything you want in a cut and sew style graphic. Um, but I think Optic 2 really pops just out of the box with some of the different options and the way they've done this graphic. And one part that you know you don't sort of see if you have dark on the inner part, but they've got this metal mesh material uh, four sort of dashes of it across the front of the pad and then across the side of the pad and also in the glove and on the back of the pocket and on the back of the thumb. And it's, I don't know, like it's kind of like a techie looking material. Uh, according to Brian's, it comes from the baseball industry. It's a really durable material, but it just kind of adds to, there's a richness to it that adds to the quality of the graphic to me. Yeah. I mean, you're seeing that a lot and it definitely is the hotter trend is to kind of create, you know, uh, almost like a tech mesh graphic, you know, for your pads. Um, you're seeing in a lot of the other brands too as well. But for here, you know, it's a bit of a carryover from the Genetic 4. They have that same material on there and now they've, you know, obviously put the same technology into their optics. Um, you can get it clean face if that's something that you did want. Uh, again, no problem. It's Brian's. Um, but that said, it does provide it, you know, especially I'm staring at an all white set here. It, it, it just makes it pop that much more rather than a bland all white set. Yeah. And it's kind of like, like they said, they call it metal mesh. I mean, it's almost like a, like not to go all Game of Thrones on them. But it's kind of like this, it's got like a chain 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 metal sort of sort of like it's high tech but it's old school look i i just like it well, winter is coming kevin winter is coming yeah exactly so um let's move on to the performance of it uh the one thing that's different in this one now, now original optic you could get in a fly or a flex pad we tried the fly um we were a little perplexed about the concept of a flex because we found that even in the fly um as it broke in that really thin outer roll, there, there was enough flex in that, in our opinion. And any more might have risked actually pucks, you know, skipping through 
your five hole when the pads closed in front of it. At least that was our fear. Mm -hmm. Interesting to note that they've changed. You can still get flex or fly, but the standard is going to be what they call max and still a really thin profile, but a lot more pre-curve yet still stiff. So they've changed the foam layup of this core so that you have a little bit more of that rounded profile at the top to help you sort of close the butterfly if you're narrower. But it's not going to change shape over time. It's going to hold that shape longer because they've reinforced that foam layup. Still really thin, still as thin as the Optic One, still a really lightweight pad, um, but a lot more pre-curved that's going to hold its curve. Yeah, and you know what? Initial, initial looks have been really positive in that sense. Um, I really do like the addition of that pre-curve, especially when you have a stiff pad. Now that's the one thing, like don't go into this thinking like the genetic and the optic are the same because they definitely have separated themselves with this. It's much more rigid. I'm sitting there trying to flex it right now and I'm basically getting a flex of the boot. That's it. So in terms of for as you're dropping in that butterfly, you're going to have that rigid seal every time. And that's one of the things that they've really, really improved on from one to two um, has been the solid seal that the pad gets now on the ice. Yeah, no. And that's the next thing I wanted to touch on. Obviously, um, if there was an issue, at least at the NHL level uh, in early testing and something we found in early testing, they, they modified it by adding a, adding a pillow to optic one. Um, but the seal wasn't as good as it could have been in our opinion. That was one area where there were still some question marks. Absolutely not the case in Optic 2. Um, it's not just the seal and the way the pad seals the ice. And so they still have a pillow in there, but they've added an extra sort of inner calf wrap. And so in addition to great puck, uh, ice seal, and part of it is the boot structure too. There's a little less flex in there. So the pad's not going to roll over uh, right into the way they've stitched in the knee. Again, it's about creating stability and seal. And that has been the number one first impression from our testers. We haven't had it long enough to do a full breakdown review, but first impression reviews, and that'll we'll have that online on November 1st, our overview of the pad. The stability in the butterfly of this pad is among the best we've tested and certainly a notable improvement from the Optic One. When you're on your knees in the butterfly, it's like like you're sitting on a pillow. It's really easy to stay stable and balanced over the knees. And the seal, and still with the slide on the OptiSlide, still slides really well. Normally when you get that kind of seal and you focus on improving a seal, it's at the expense of slide because seal means what? More of the pad against the ice. And we haven't had any, like everything anecdotally is that it still slides just as well. Still slides incredibly. Credit to the Primo material, yet the balance and the stability is just, like I said, it's early, but that's the number one first impression from goalies we've had using the Optic 2 pad. Can't wait to give it uh, a whirl for myself. And we'll make sure we capture that on <laughs> video to show everyone how good you look in it. Uh, a couple <laughs> other quick features. Um, obviously, the knee block remains sort of angled at the front. Um, they have added the smart strap on the toe that we talked about a couple podcasts ago with the little bridge gap that you can adjust the length on it. Uh, really like that early feedback on that. That's why we talked about it as an add-on you can buy for any pad. We really like that. Uh, removable bootstrap is nylon. Uh, and, and one thing that is sort of an aftermarket add to this one, you have to order it after the fact, but they basically have like a version, their version, for lack of a better term, it's the common phrase, a professor strap you can add to this. That's correct. Yeah, it is something that uh, will be at, at the custom level. You can order you know, separately and uh, will be probably something we are going to be carrying in store um, as all of our stock sets do not have it on. So that said, um, but it's, but it's called the control strap. And what they've done is they've, they've left 
an area there. They basically created an area where it easily is sort of tied in. Stitched in is the wrong word, but you can just tie it in with lace and add your own quote-unquote professor or what they call the control strap. So interestingly enough, we didn't feel we needed it at all. Um, these pads also do come with uh, Brian's uh, knee pads underneath. We tried them with those. They're, they're a, I'd say, a medium-range knee pad. But we also tried these pads with like our oversized pro-level knee protection and found the ability, again, the stability and the ability to stay on the block, even in oversized knee protection. Um, didn't feel like I needed a control strap, to be honest with you. I felt like that was really locked in nicely to the knee and no problem with the pad rotating going to the ice. Like just a, It was just a really well-balanced pad up, down, and sliding around. Awesome. Uh, yeah. Like I said, I can't, I can't wait to confirm everything you just said. <laughs> okay. So uh, let's move on to the gloves. Um, same break. It's a 35 degree break, I believe is what they call. That's, that's their reference point uh, for the break angle and the optic two, similar to the optic one, same as the optic one, actually um, different by about 10 degrees from the genetic glove, but they have changed how the break is constructed. Uh, they've stitched it in this time. Last time they didn't stitch in the break they tried to create sort of the ability to break it in a little bit. Like you could sort of almost customize how it closed based on how you broke it in. The problem was that created some inconsistencies. Those inconsistencies are gone here. Yeah. This is one of those things where you give somebody too many options. Sometimes it's not beneficial. Um, but this time it's now stitched fully in, like you said, in that off the shelf closure so much better. Uh, Buttery. You, yeah, yeah, exactly. You can have that feel right off the bat. You can, I feel like it can walk with this into the game other than just shaping the glove a little bit more, which is with anything off the wall, you kind of got to do that. Um, return to the BOA system, um, that nice tug or nice, tight, snug feel, um, especially for guys that are really torquing on that wrist strap. And, and if you haven't seen it before, folks, the BOA system is basically like it's used in, in all kinds of different skateboarding, uh, sort of snowboarding, industry, like construction. Basically, it's strapping where you can... It's like a mechanical strapping, but we really found it worked well uh, in the optic one, especially in the glove. That ability to create a tightening around the hand and have it sort of locked in mechanically where it doesn't. it's not going to stretch out as a game goes on and just like a dial system. Uh, we were, you know, we were big fans. I know everybody cringes when things are new and unique, but we were big fans of it. Now you're seeing a refined iteration of it and like, let's try to test it in true. So check it out. Yeah. And uh, the one thing I would say, like in, in typical Brian's fashion, like the glove is pocket focused, like it's pocket heavy. Um, not a, like not a, not necessarily a blocking glove, but like it's more about the pocket than the cuff per se. And it's a monstrous pocket and it seems to vacuum cleaner gloves in there or pucks in there on a consistent basis. Like you said, the cl closure is easy. Um, I would say when it comes out of the box, it's closed. You can open and close it really quick. For us, the break-in was more about actually just sort of opening it up wide to present big so that you had both nice and open and still closes real easy. Uh, blocker, a couple quick details on that. We don't like to say a blocker is a blocker because we think it's an important piece of your equipment, uh, both from a protection standpoint and stopping pucks. Uh, this one is that the hand position is a little higher uh, on the Optic 2 blocker. So in other words, your hand is further up the board. The board sticks out further from your fingers. It was interesting for me putting it on for the first time, coming from a more balanced board in, in what I was using before as one of the early testers for Ingol. Um, it felt odd. And then I made a couple saves that were extended that just caught the end of the blocker that I'm like, yeah, I don't know if I have that extra inch extension without it. So it's just a matter of getting comfortable and personal preference. Um, again, BOA system on the wrist. I do like they've added some padding around the index finger, which I think is important. We saw that in CCM with their D3O. 
I'm not sure what kind of foam this is underneath the mesh, but clearly an additional layer of foam that just goes right around your finger and adds a layer of protection. So um, they say a blocker is a blocker, but it looks like I, I see some improvements in this one compared uh, to Optic One. And as long as you're comfortable with the board being placed higher, um, this is a good one. If you're not, custom orders. Brian will do. Brian's can do pretty much anything for you. Exactly. And, and again, you touched on it, but I, like I really like the feel, uh, the balance the blocker board has. Um, just a general overall on your hand as it sits in a stance. Um, the adjustability on the fingertips is back as well. That was something that they kind of introduced on the uh, original optic. Um, yeah, you know what? There's it's small refinements. Like how much can you change a blocker from last year, unless you're making an entirely new one? But uh, they're all great refinements. It feels great. Try it on your hand. It's an evol- it's an evolution from Optic One for sure. Um, you know, I, I, if it's not broke, don't fix it. I liked the departure for them to separate their lines last year. Um, and what I love now is that they recognized, hey, not everything was perfect. Let's try and get closer to it. Like I said, the seal for sure. The seal, the stability on the ice without the cost of, of the sliding that Optic One was known for. Uh, I think a lot of people are going to like this pad. Me as well. Okay, perfect. And of course, you can, you'll can you be able to check out our review at ingolmag.com as of November 1st. Um, they'll be following up at the Hockey Shop and thehockeyshop.com with their overview of the product soon. I know we've got some on-ice testing with Cam here tomorrow morning, some photos going on. Um, make sure you check it out at thehockeyshop.com and you should probably check them out online because it may not be right away, but there might be some original optic stock left over and when the new comes in, the old tends to go on sale. So keep an eye out for that at thehockeyshop.com and the Hockey Shop Source for Sports here in Surrey. Cam, glad you survived Bauer World. Welcome back. Today, it's all about Brian's world. Uh, we enjoyed having you on. Thanks, Kevin. You guys get them to flex and fly and uh, no longer exist, but I just, I I love the pre-curve. I'm a, oh. I'm, I mean, I, I go back to DNR. Uh, pads back when they were one of the first companies that did the the real big oh, pre-curve. Now you're talking uh, what I lusted after as a kid. I wanted those DNR pads so badly for the pre-curve, uh, Darren. Yeah. Uh, John Garrett loved his uh, DNR pads and, and the pre-curve. So it's it's kind of come all the way back and and I like what they've done here with the with the stiffer pad but a pre-curve. It, it's the best of both worlds. And a quick note, because they are Brian's and they are the custom goal company, that's the that's the label they wear. Um, you can still custom order the flex and the fly options if you really like them in the original optic. Um, but as I said in the review that I'm finishing, and I guess Hutch, I am finishing it tonight. I promise it's coming. Um, and that will be up uh, at ingolmag.com. Uh, they expect to sell between 80 and 90% of the max uh flex this pre-curved stiffer flex pad and after trying it myself and a few of our testers in the early feedback i can understand why it's a nice balance between the two and really does you know i hate this sort of you know hybrid slash butterfly when they try and identify one or the other but this is a stiffer flatter faced pre-curved pad it really sort of fits that quote-unquote butterfly mold but like i said still slides like a hot damn darren <laughs> the, the boot how how, uh, how flexible is the boot uh, it's got, it, 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 yeah, no, it's got, it's, it's, it's got more flex in the boot. Uh, the rigidness of the pad is sort of from the boot up. Brian's is always sort of stuck with a flatter boot break. Um, that's just something they've used. They don't have a steep angle boot break. All their pads tend to be a little flatter and a, and sort of a bigger boot scoop, a longer boot scoop, but a lot more flex in the, in the boot. And then everything is stiff from there on up. Oh, what about the uh, hot knife through butter? Can we, 
just offer a bit of clarification because I promised people that it would come. Hotch, you, Dad, you, you did this. Sure, I did it. I did it. We, uh, we released a little video, and I think we might have had the clip on one of the podcasts. I can't remember what episode, but shortly after being up at uh, Eli Wilson's day with Carrie Price in Summerland, BC, uh, Woody found a nice clip of uh, Carrie quietly talking to uh, one of the students off at the side, side, and one of the students asked him, "How do you break in a glove?" And uh, Carrie talked about putting it in a skate oven and. He said, it's so nice to put his hand into the glove because it feels like you're just sliding it into a warm loaf of butter. <laughs> and there's and shameless, shameless plug for a good friend of Ingol because we might be having uh, the one and only uh, KVG, the beer league legend on the pod one of these oh. days. And he released a video recently on how he breaks in a glove. And you, uh, if you went and saw that, you could also see that clip with Kerry because we, uh, we let him borrow that for his video as well. I will take that under advisement because I'm playing actually in the morning. I have to uh, I have to shut this down now because I'm going to get my beauty sleep and I'm going to play hockey in Vegas. Right on. I'm 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 very proud to say. So if you guys come down, we'll get you on the ice and uh, we'll uh, we'll have a little uh, little session. But uh, I I think that it's I I sort of title it and and think of it as my I finally arrived in Vegas because I found a little skate. Hey, uh, to be able to go out. hey, I think I finally arri- arrived, too, because you just said if you guys come down to Vegas. Am I invited yeah, now? Yeah, good. Yes. Yes. Yes, you are. All right. I've arrived, yeah. too. Yeah. You um, you can drive us around. Somebody's <laughs> got to keep somebody's got to keep track of the luggage, Darren. Somebody's got to care. <laughs> somebody's got to carry the kids bags into the arena because yeah. they're not strong enough. You know what? The, the, the skate that I go to, Darren Elliott, uh, do you remember him? Uh, Southpaw goaltender, uh, played LA Kings and, and, and such. Uh, he, he's a forward out there, and he, he makes me nervous that you're playing with a National Hockey League, former National Hockey League goalie, but, but he's a forward that he's always judging you. I, I, I'm almost 50 years old, and I'm still getting nervous about people watching me. <laughs> How'd you find, how did you find a skate so fast? Uh, connections. Yeah. Yeah. A lot of, a lot of, a lot of great connections. I'm not going to lie to you. I'm a big thing. Attaboy. <laughs> <laughs> so I'm going to say goodnight and I'm going to go and uh, get lit up in the morning. Uh, as most opposed to most people in Vegas who get lit up at night, I'm going to get lit up in the morning and uh, skate uh, for David Hutchison and Kevin Woodley. Uh, thanks to Andy Moog and Cam over at the hockey shop, thehockeyshop.com. I'm Darren Malari. Thanks for listening. And we'll see you again in your crease and uh, in your neck of the rink. 